0: High Truths on Drugs and Addiction, where national experts bring you facts and answer your questions. I'm your host, Dr. Onit Lev, an emergency and addiction doctor who has worked at the White House and still practices on the front lines. Right here on High Truths, you will learn from experts, hear stories from the emergency department and listen to people who have struggled from addiction. Each episode, we will answer questions from you, our listeners. To learn more about the show, submit a question, access educational material, or even take a quiz. You can visit us on hightruths.com. Hi, everyone. You are in for an interesting education with this episode of High Truths. Regardless of where you are on the issue of marijuana legalization, the majority of Americans are concerned, as they should be, about the increased problem of drugged driving. No one wants their loved one to die prematurely because of a drunk driver or a drugged driver. Our nation has worked hard with laws and public health campaigns to minimize drunk driving. We have clear per se laws with 0.08 as the legal limit for driving under the influence of alcohol. Bars are liable and know to cut off drinkers. Friends know to take away keys from drunk friends who may be tempted to drive. MAD, Mothers Against Drunk Driving, is a household name in advocating for strong measures to keep our roads safe for everyone. Well, what about Drugs. Is it safe to drive high on meth or baked on pot? Can you get behind the wheel while taking Xanax or oxycodone? And what about the combinations of these drugs? We don't have per se laws for marijuana like we do for alcohol. We have MAD, Mothers Against Drunk Drivers. Where is Dad, the dads against drug driving? Adam Berry, a physician assistant and emergency department colleague, has a question related to this topic.
1: Hello, High Truths. First off, I would like to say that I really enjoy listening to your podcast as it's been very helpful and informative. My name is Adam Berry, and I work as a physician assistant at a busy urban emergency department at a level one trauma center. In our emergency department, we treat a variety of different patients, many of whom struggle with addiction. I have treated many patients whom are victims of drug driving and many who are impaired themselves while driving. So my questions for High Truth is, when should people who are prescribed sedating medications, such as opiates or benzodiazepines, be told to not actually be driving?
0: Thanks, Adam, for that question. Many providers, patients, and pharmacists may be pondering that question as well. To answer your question, I turn to a passionate expert who has spent years researching and studying the effects of drugged driving. He's a pharmacist whose family tragedy led him to become an unrelenting educator and advocate on the issue of drug driving. Dr. Phil Drum is that expert. Dr. Drum is a doctor of pharmacy an expert in drug driving, especially marijuana drug driving. His professional experience ranges from working in a community pharmacy practice, hospital pharmacy work, cancer or oncology pharmacy, and regional manager for training in patient medication safety. He's active with the Pharmacy Association and is a national speaker on pharmacy and drugged driving. Dr. Phil Drum's bio and links to lectures are included in the High Truths show notes. Dr. Phil Drum, welcome to High Truths.
1: Hi, thank you very much.
0: It's such an honor to have you with us today. Um, Dr. Drum, can you tell us how did you become such an expert? How did your career lead to this?
1: Well, it was as a result of a family tragedy, as you had mentioned. Um, My sister was a nurse, um, was driving to work in Seattle, Washington in 2012, in July of 2012. And on her way driving into work, she was hit head-on by what turned out to be a marijuana-only impaired driver at 6.22 a.m. And hit her head-on. She had to be cut out of the vehicle. She was dead on arrival. At the car, they called it caused a, a multi car pileup that ended up uh, taking the road down for eight hours, a main thoroughfare getting into the city. As a result of that, um, we were not told by the police and the, and the Seattle police that marijuana was involved. Um, we actually found out from the auto insurance company two months later. Um, so we didn't know why she was killed. We just knew she got hit head on. And then all of a sudden we find out in, in September that um, marijuana fell out of the car, marijuana dispensary card fell out of the car. This is a marijuana user. Um, I wasn't that aware as to what was going on at the time in Seattle and in Washington, but in 2012 was when they were voting for their legalization, their I-502. And so um, it was kind of wanting to keep it on the down low that a nurse in downtown Washington was murdered by a marijuana impaired driver as they're trying to approve marijuana for recreational purposes. And um, I started, once we found that out from the police, um, I contacted the DA and asked, um, did you want some help? I'm a pharmacist and I can provide you all sorts of evidence on marijuana impaired driving. And so that's when I really got into starting to look at how bad marijuana is for um, as an impairing agent uh, with people driving down the road. After that, um, I started making contacts with other folks around the nation. And I ended up finding out there was a researcher that wrote an article back in 1969 in science on marijuana impaired driving. His name was Al Kranzer. And I found out Al actually lives close to me. And so I met with Al. And Al was a former National uh, Highway Transportation Safety Authority researcher. So he knew how to access the FARS database. The FARS database is the Fatality Analysis Reporting System. So every state reports in their driving fatalities, the drugs that were involved, the time of day, um, all sorts of information, they, they submit that in. And this FARS database then can be used to look at the information. So I worked with Al and we were sending out reports about every quarter of, the, of a year on us looking at various topics um, on this. And from there, other people started picking up you know, our, our reports and started inviting me to give talks at various places.
0: And what's your sister's name?
1: Rosemary. So Rosemary okay. Temple, you can see the, the, the case um, on DUID Victims' Voices and look up Rosemary Temple. And that's my sister um who's now my little sister she was six years older than me and now that was it back in 2012 so she's now my little sister um she was never able to get past age 56 um as a result of this um that yeah it was it was quite a tragedy we have i have the story as to what happened um again the da did not want to file charges for impaired driving um i had to hire a lawyer to encourage the DA to file the DUI charges because I ended up finding out that the person that killed my sister had, was a two-time felon, was on probation at the time for beating his wife while under the influence of alcohol and marijuana. His first felony was for selling marijuana and cocaine to an undercover cop. He had multiple DUIs for marijuana and he just continued to get his hands slapped by the legal system. And ultimately, I got the charges raised because it was meaning the difference between a four and a half year sentence to a 19 year sentence. And uh, so they charged him with the DUI, Um, but the judge then threw out the marijuana dispensary cards that fell out, the marijuana that fell out, his past driving records, The the, the judge threw out all the marijuana evidence in the case. So the case was brought forward as a simple reckless driving. And so being in around the same time, I started finding other cases there in the state of Washington that had happened. And I started contacting those people as well. So it's a major tragedy that's happening across the United States. We in California are easily having two to three driving deaths a day uh, due to marijuana and drivers easily.
0: Wow. Um- Phil, may Rosemary's memory be a blessing, and I know that her memory is an inspiration to you for all the work that you do and can t- to fuel what you do and educate and and me as well and other people who here um are driven by this tragedy and tragedy, um you know, can be turned into um inspiration. That's what you're doing. Mm-hmm. so what what is drug driving? What does that no mean? Drug-
1: Drug driving is being under the influence of some substance that's foreign to the body. Um, it could be anything, is from again cough syrup could have medication in it that um, could make you impaired. To you know, again, we know sedative agents um, will do that, opiates will do that, marijuana will do that. Anything that alters your your ability to function properly um, in an automobile. And again, it does require multiple. Um, Parts of your body. You, you know, you have to be able to see appropriately, hear appropriately, respond appropriately, and these drugs then impair the, your ability to do all of those functions. In fact, something that I learned recently—well, actually, it was back in 2019—I learned that marijuana actually impairs your ability to see; um, that it actually causes a, a tunnel vision. And so it, it started then hitting to me because I was hearing about cases in which people were going through red lights. And what happens is, is because they have a tunnel vision, they lose the upper portions and the upper side portions of their vision when under the influence of marijuana. And so therefore, those traffic lights that are overhead, they don't see them. Those traffic lights off to the sides, they don't see them and they go right through the intersection and T-bone people.
0: Wow. You know, I, I worked last night. No, sorry. I worked yesterday morning, the morning shift. I I work and day shift, so it gets all mixed up. But (laughs) the morning shift yesterday, um, into our trauma center, is a guy who's, you know, um, a car collision. And um, the story is that he was reaching for candy in his car and he didn't see the car in front of him. And he, you know, major damage to the front end, airbags deployed, required extrication. And then I do the ultrasound exam you know it's called the fast exam in the trauma unit and you get really close to the person while you're doing that and it's like this guy is reeking of marijuana this guy was baked he wasn't just reaching out for candy he's completely impaired um no police officers no you know they're not gonna he's gonna get away with it and I think so many people unfortunately are driving under the influence and
1: I would strongly encourage you so, to start documenting and 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 drawing, whether it be blood levels and or uh, urine levels, um, there's studies out there that do. That was done in in Italy, that looked at urine carboxy, um, the um, one of the metabolites of from THC, and there was a tenfold increase in crashes um, when the presence of carboxy in the urine. And again, we know that carboxy will stay in the in the urine for a while. And we do know it's it's not the acute people that are that are just impaired it's the chronic users are chronically impaired
0: All right he's also has he even had heart surgery and he's you know not even you know mentioning the health on his heart with that but that happened early in the morning and uh you you and your lecturers have an interesting take on the time that these collisions occur
1: yeah as i mentioned with my sister um it was 6 22 a.m and so what you have to recognize is these marijuana um, users are chronic users. Um, They tend to become chronic users over time. And so they they know that they're not supposed to use at work. And so they're using before work and after work. And in our research that I did with Al Crancer, we saw that in the FARS database, we saw that there was a spike in the morning. My sister got killed at 622. There's actually a spike in deaths between 7 to 8 a.m. And then there's another spike from 4 to 8 p.m or 9 pm uh, in the evening um, and those are rush hour traffic times that these driving fatalities due to marijuana are occurring and it's because they're using before work and using after work and we also saw in the research when we looked at the combination of marijuana and alcohol there was a two-hour delay and we suspected it was because so a two-hour delay in the peak in driving deaths. So then, instead of starting at four o'clock, it was starting at six o'clock. And we were then under the assumption that probably they went to the bar for two hours. They had a joint. They went to a bar, had a soup, some beers, and that's when we started seeing then the alcohol and driving, the alcohol and marijuana driving fatalities, then picking up from six until ten in the evening. Um, so as compared to alcohol drivers, um, alcohol drivers, as we know, they they tend to kill people or themselves um, late at night when the bar is closed. And so usually the peak times for alcohol impaired driving is late at night. Um, So two o'clock in the morning, one o'clock in the morning, midnight, around that time is when it's more dangerous to be around um, alcohol impaired driving. And so um, this is very concerning because now you're having marijuana impaired driving occurring during peak driving hours. And we did notice this then on our data that when we looked at for the crashes, how many people were being killed Um, And the types of people being killed by these marijuana impaired drivers, we were seeing a higher number of innocents is what we called them. Other people, bicyclists, other drivers like my sister, um, pedestrians, motorcyclists being killed by these marijuana impaired drivers because these were occurring during rush hour traffic when people are out on the road, more more innocent people are out on the road.
0: You no, know, that's that's fascinating. So if people, you know, what's worse, drunk drunk driving or drug driving or marijuana driving, it's marijuana driving because those accidents occur during rush hour, high traffic, and have more, you know, other fatalities and injuries associated with them than drunk driving that occurs late at night and less people on the road.
1: I'd like to I'd like to correct um, you with one little thing that you said. These aren't accidents.
0: That's right.
1: There's no you're absolutely right. It's a crash. Um, there's no accident that they use marijuana. It's no accident that they were behind the wheel of the car. And as a result, there, that's no accident. Um, and so, again, um, I've heard of horror stories in which the defense attorney counted the number of times the, the prosecuting attorney, the DA, said the word accident and said to the, said to the jury, this was merely an accident. This, this crash was an accident. The DA said so six times. So be very careful. You're using- right. You're absolutely
0: right. You, you are right. And I know better, um, but I, <laughs> I think, you know, Oh, here, I saw this patient yesterday and then I have to go code it in my electronic medical record. They don't have MVC it's MVA. So then mm-hmm. I'm, you know, cause it's, I know it Maybe sounds stupid on, on my that. end, but it's hard for me electronic record <laughs> and I have to like search for these diagnoses, and I have to come, you know um, so you're, you're absolutely right absolutely right my yeah. my apologies i've got to work on that mvc yeah, which does not show up on my computer
1: <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that, but it the makes me code people, mva yeah the the mad the mad group yeah. mothers against drunk driving are very um opposed to using the word accident as well and i've picked up yes. from them and i have also heard from so from um, people in, in Colorado say, don't ever use that word.
0: Right. Accident. I, I know better and crashes. it still comes out of my mouth. And, and I, we need
1: to make sure our DAs don't say that either. In fact, yeah. I corrected my DA in Contra Costa County and the Alameda DA at a talk that I gave when they can repeatedly using the word at, at, a, at a conference that we were at for, for these crashes. And they kept saying, accident, accident, accident. And they stood up and said, excuse me, you need to change your verbiage here. These are crashes. right.
0: right. Yeah. So we're talking about times and the time of day that, you know, alcohol fatalities happen at, you know, when the bar is closed and when uh, fatalities happen during before, after work, during rush hour. And there's also a day of the week, a day of the year where we have a lot more fatalities, a, a very celebrated day for 20. Can you tell us yes. about that?
1: Yeah, there's um, so there's actually the day of the week, too, um, is very interesting in that it's not a day of the week as it is with alcohol, alcohol has a day of the week. Um, it's the weekend. And so when we looked at the FARS database and we were looking when when are these alcohol um, driving fatalities occurring, it was Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. But then when we looked at the marijuana engaged uh, cases, um, it didn't matter. It didn't matter the day of the week. And so mm-hmm. Monday, through, Monday through Sunday was when marijuana fatalities occur. The issue that but you want me to day talk of, about but there's is a the, day, of the day in the year. That's right. And it's 420. (laughs) 420 is the marijuana high holiday. Um, And um, it's very interesting in that um, there was a study came out that looked at the number of driving fatalities on 420 from 420 PM to midnight. And they compared the number of fatalities on that day to a week before that day, so 413, and, and then on 427 a week afterwards. And they found a 12% increase in the number of fatalities on 420 from 420 PM to midnight on 420, um, which, which is the same number of a of a day that we just had recently, the same number of increased in fatalities that we see on Super Bowl Sunday. And I think we can all relate as to what happens on Super Bowl Sunday, that people are out drinking alcohol. And so again, the assumption is is for uh, Super Bowl Sundays or alcohol related. 420 is probably um, marijuana related. That that's what's causing those increased fatalities. 12 percent increase in fatalities on that day.
0: Yeah, April twentieth not a day to be on on the road. Although, um, what's that? Hitler's birthday.
1: How Hitler's, bro- oh,
0: very good, oh, nice. I like that. How appropriate for, for, for that, but <laughs> it's Perfect. Hitler's day. Next yeah. time they say someone, it's marijuana day. I'll say, oh yeah, and it's also Hitler's day.
1: <laughs> yeah, there you go. How do you like that?
0: <laughs> <laughs> I have to say that this Super Bowl, I worked in the emergency department, and it was a very quiet day. Yeah. Was, yeah. This is a pandemic Super Bowl' is not like um, regular oh, time no. super Bowls. So.
1: Absolutely not. It's not like any other Super Bowl that we've had with the people then not not getting together and drinking. Yeah.
0: Now what I've found treating patients who were victims in the trauma unit after collision, if they're impaired from any drugs, prescription or illicit drugs, is that they don't have insight they are not aware of their impairment. Um, I had a young woman who crashed while taking Xanax and she was addicted to Xanax. She was a major trauma victim, multiple bones broken, long hospitalization. And then I saw her months later, she came in for a different problem. And I asked her about her experience. I said, if this happened to you, um, you know, now you realize Xanax is a problem. And she said, yes, it did. But at the time, if the day before I told her, Hey, don't get behind the wheel while you're taking the Xanax, would you have realized that? And she said, no, I wouldn't, I wouldn't have, you know, I'd say, you don't know what you're talking about. You know, so she had at least insight to the, her lack of insight, but it really sheds a problem that, that people think they're fine.
1: Yeah. Let me tell you, let me relate this back to my oncology days. Um and again, I was an oncology pharmacist in the nineteen eighties and nineties, and back then it was just that the advent of getting really good antiemetics. Um, but prior to that, we were using drugs in the benzodiazepine class, which is what Xanax is and Zaleplon. And so, one of the common drugs we would commonly use is lorazepam or Ativan as an antiemetic. And it was kind of it was an it was something to calm people. Antiemetic down. Antiemetic
0: means not throwing like, up, preventing you like, from throwing up.
1: Sorry, medical (laughs) speak. And so, uh, yeah, so we would use this, but it was also worked for anticipatory nausea and vomiting. And so we then, especially we would use um, for breast cancer, we'd use some um, very highly vomiting inducing drugs. And so um, the people just would see the hospital and they'd start throwing up. Um, But then we started using Etivan and it worked like a charm and it worked so well that, and we didn't have that great of coverage with the other agents that we would use. We were using metoclopramide at very high doses. Um, kind of worked, but not as well as some of the other agents that came on later. Um, but we were using Ativan. And talk about amnestic effect and them not realizing and remembering. Um, I, I recall I'd go on rounds with the oncologist in the morning. We'd go around and I'd look, and I'd always look for the ins and outs and look to see how, many, how much fluid went in and how much fluid came out. And so you'd see a lot of vomiting um would happen and so um, I'd always check to make sure that we're kind of balanced and I'd see oh, oh wow this person vomited two to three liters in the night and so I'd go in the morning and I'd ask him how did you do last night oh I did great the woman would tell me I go oh really did you vomit at all not at all that's how right.
0: it's is. not it because it's not an anti doesn't make you um you know not throw up it just makes you not care that you not throw. not
1: remember up. <laughs> not remember and so how do you operate a vehicle and not remembering and not remember. And so there there was some and there was an, a very famous case of somebody supposedly switching their uh one drug for for ambient um and used ambien instead of their thyroid pill and smashed into a car. And, and said,
0: ambien is a, a sleeping yeah. pill.
1: Right. Yep. It's a non-benzodiazepine, uh benzodiazepine receptor hitter. So it's just like using Ativan, morazepam or, or Xanax. People will not remember what's going on. And when you start combining these, then these drugs that cause these mental effects, it's very dangerous.
0: It is. And, you know, Ambien's another one. It's like you're not, uh, but you don't care that you didn't sleep. (laughs) Right. And I had a patient yesterday who he was vaping off of somebody else's vape and took some uh, puffs and he felt like something was absolutely wrong and he, 911 to the emergency department. I was really impressed by his reaction and that he didn't feel right. And, and his reaction was, I can't believe people drive like that. I mean, when when you're feeling that way. I thought that was insightful for him. You have, yeah. you know, and you have people who have an insight, like he had an insight. And then I had the same day, the bed next over was a guy who overdosed. Four times, and he was in a car when this happened. So I can report him to the DMV because that's a you know disabled driver. But four times in three days he overdosed. Really worried for his life, and I I got him a treatment bed, and I was all ready to send him, you know, waking him up with an naloxone because he kept falling asleep, and I wanted to have him talk to the intake worker. And he said, "No, I didn't overdose. I didn't overdose. You prove it. No, I didn't. I'm fine. You can't make me." And I was like, "Wow." People have different types of insights.
1: Never trust a drug user as to what they tell you that they used. <laughs> always give them yeah. always give them the benzodiazepine reversal agent, and then all, well, give them the naloxone first because it's cheaper. But if that doesn't wake them up, then try the benzodiazepine reversal agent because um, they're not going to tell you the truth.
0: And in their defense, they don't know what they took. They have okay. no idea what was in the vape. Yeah. I mean, it's not, they don't always, they, they may think of what they know what they bought. I bought a Xanax pill, but it's not, right. it was fentanyl. They don't really know. People don't always right. know what they're taking.
1: Right, or and sometimes they're, they're they don't adding care. fentanyl to get that same sort of effect in the brain um, that they're getting with the, the benzodiazepine with the Xanax. They The Xanax is too expensive. We've kind of cut off the supplies. And so what they're doing is, is they're making it look like Xanax, but they're dropping some fentanyl on it. Uh, to give them that mental clouding effect that they're looking for. And th- as you know, the dangerous effect with that fentanyl is so potent that if they mess up on the right. dose and the person's not opiate uh, dependent, um, they're going to overdose.
0: Um, what about testing? We we know about testing for drunk driving. Everybody knows about that. You either do a breathalyzer or you get a blood test. Um, and, you know, that's easy and accepted. Uh, what about other drugs? What about marijuana?
1: So, um, right now, like, I think the, the th- key thing that we have to recognize is what, what's the substance we're talking about. So, we're talking about a fat soluble substance, T- T- Delta 9 THC, which is the ac- psychoactive component that's in um, marijuana that they're, that they're wanting to, to use um, and get that effect from. And so, that is a fat soluble molecule. I think that a lot of us know that. They understand that it, it sticks around in the fat stores. Well, the biggest fat uh, organ in your body is between your ears and so that's the concerning part is that and then when we're drawing blood for marijuana we're drawing blood and blood is water soluble and so it's great for looking for a two carbon chain alcohol molecule it's bad for looking for a 21 carbon chain fat soluble molecule like marrow or delta 9 dhc so you're looking in the wrong area when you're doing a blood test for marijuana and to point out how important it is, again, you end up losing about 90% within the first hour, hour and 20 minutes. You lose 90% of the blood level um, from at the time from 90 minutes be- or from about. So it makes the test worthless. Before. So it makes the test worthless. So we really need to get past this idea of doing a blood test for marijuana because you're looking in the wrong tissue. You're looking in blood, which is water, and this is a fat-soluble molecule.
0: So how about I'd be saliva? Happy.
1: Saliva again is water-soluble um and and but with saliva so we have tests that are um they are they're out there that will prove that the person has has used um the marijuana um but it's not going to give you a blood level um there are some that will give you levels um there's a couple of, of tests out there that will do saliva tests um and so they they will show one of them just shows positive or negative and the other one will show a, a, a natural level um uh, of uh, of the drug, and you can test them for multiple drugs. So you could test for methamphetamine, marijuana, PCP, MD MDMA, uh, ecstasy, cocaine. Um, so you can. It's test all available
0: on saliva.
1: All available on saliva. In fact, there was a case in California known as the Salas case in Bakersfield that allowed that now to be brought into court. That you can now bring in the positive uh, saliva test, oral swab. Uh, to prove that the person had that present in their body. There are some studies going on out there looking at a breathalyzer for marijuana. Unfortunately, um, it's not looking long enough for the use of marijuana. Um, I've been in contact with um, the person that runs uh, a lab near me um, and and the company. And he's saying, well, we, we got it up to three hours of use since three hours of use. And I'd love to then report From Colorado, they had what they called monitoring the health concerns related to marijuana in Colorado in 2016. And in this report, it says we found substantial evidence that delaying driving for at least six hours after smoking less than 18 milligrams of THC allows the THC induced impairment to resolve or nearly resolve for users who use less than weekly. So this is an infrequent user that they are substantially, that they are impaired for at least six hours if they use 18 milligrams of THC. Six hours. And then when they looked at the edibles, it was the same amount, 18 milligrams, but they were impaired for eight hours after ingestion. And so if you're telling me you have a breathalyzer that looks at three hours since use, you're not looking long enough because we already have evidence that you need to look at least for six hours or eight hours. And that's at an infrequent user. A frequent user is going to have those those fat stores are going to have a lot of THC in them and they are chronically impaired. Chronic users are chronically impaired. There's no tolerance to the, the mental the deficiencies that are being created that you need to drive a car. Um, and so um, chronic users should not be driving at all because they have THC in their brain. So there are there are other ways of looking. You could look mm-hmm. for again. There's a saliva test. Um, should really be looking for the presence of it. Um, we really need to get away from looking for a drug level because you're not going to find a drug level. There's no drug level for individuals uh, for all these other drugs as compared to alcohol. Even the alcohol drug level is really a, a legislative selection of 0.08. Um, right. In fact, they're pushing they just and. Had to and pick people, something. Uh, Utah is pushing to make it go down to 0.05. In fact, it's actually federally recommended to go down to 0.05 and it hasn't. Um, But so they picked the number based on the number of crashes and and type of impairment seen. And so they were able to get the 0.08. They used to have 0.1 for a long time. It was 0.12, then 0.1, now 0.08, but it's it's kind of stuck there. The scary thing is, is that we're now seeing alcohol impaired Fatalities are no longer number one. It's poly drug use is now number one in causing dri- driving fatalities. So it's multiple drugs that are causing these fatalities is the leading cause of, of dr- the death now in the roadways.
0: And, and that goes along with drug driving, right? Most people who overdose on drugs don't die from one drug. They die of a combination, a cocktail. And, and I'm not surprised to see that that's true um, behind the wheel as well. Yeah, so and, and if there's no number, if we can't pick a number like we do for alcohol, 0.08 or 0.05, then what's the solution for for marijuana?
1: So the solution is, and we've been doing this now for a while too. The law enforcement officers do what when they see see somebody weaving down the road? They pull them over, they may do that breath that that PAS test where they they check the out al- the, the breath for alcohol. And then they start going through and, and testing to see, can they do the finger to nose? Can they, can they uh, put their arms out and stand on one leg? Um, can, they, can they close their eyes with their arms out and not fall over? Can they do the walk and turn, the nine step walk and turn? And they've actually done that with marijuana and they found accuracy, the 96.7% prediction, a cannabis impairment if they failed two or more of the standard field sobriety tests. So my point would be, we could do the oral swab and find out if there's drug impairment. It doesn't really matter. I think what needs to what needs to matter is why don't we check to see are they, you know, from the standard field sobriety tests, they're called standard field sobriety tests uh, that we've been using since the 1960s and 70s, uh, that if the person isn't able to function properly, then they are deemed to have been impaired. And again, we've done studies to prove this, that Marijuana um, people are showing that impairment in the standard field sobriety test.
0: So that sobriety test, it's the same for alcohol, marijuana, opioids, Xanax, right? It's the same test. Correct. And people who are using and this goes to Adam's question about impairment with prescriptions that we write from the hospital or the doctor's office. It's the same impairment that goes behind the wheel, whether it's not a different test. You do a heel to toe for Xanax and a finger to toe for opioid It's, it's the same test. And the right. impairment is the same right. um, and standardized behind the wheel.
1: There are a few little extra clues that they've found with, um, with um, marijuana in that in the modified Romberg, if they're seeing eye fluttering, then this is something- oh, So
0: explain, you. you have to explain what Romberg means.
1: So that's the 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 arms out to the side, right? And close your eyes and count to 20 or count to 30. Um, and so if they're seeing their eyelids fluttering, for some strange reason, um, THC is, is inducing this, um, that they see their eyelids flutter. And so this is something for you to take back to the emergency room is that if you have, and it's usually when you're having them multitask. And so you're having them try to do something and then their eyelids are fluttering. Um, that's the tip off that somebody, there's a very few drugs that that do that. And, and THC is one of them. I'm
0: going to try that. Now, problem with this solution that I see is, okay, you could do the field sobriety test and you could check for impairment of type of drugs um, um, or any type of medical problem that you may have not related to drugs that makes you, you shouldn't be, be driving. Um, but that doesn't help if someone's in a crash, right? Like my patient, you can do you can't do a field is in the trauma unit. We're busy. We're not gonna let law enforcement come and do their little tests. They're they're in they need to get a CAT scan and other things and go to surgery. Um, so the worst cases we don't have an, an answer to w- with right. doing that test.
1: And I don't think we ever will. I don't think really? we
0: ever will. Because oh, the reality
1: is is we actually have we actually, we actually have a study out there that, that's already showed this. It was uh, the National Institute of Health, Maryland Houston's uh, lab, that does um, these um, driving, simulated driving studies. And they were giving people alcohol, marijuana, and alcohol and marijuana. And when they gave them the, uh, the alcohol, they saw the weaving down the road, the standard deviation of lateral position, they call it SD, so that's weaving. And so that's where they were seeing, okay, the amount of weaving that we see with 0.08 alcohol on this simulated driver was equivalent to 13 nanograms per ml of THC. Okay, 13 at the time Mm -hmm. of driving. That's the key because by the time we draw the blood and this was a study that I did with Ed Wood out of Colorado, we looked to see how long is it taking to draw blood? And on average, it it takes two hours on average and that we were looking at fatalities and we were also looking at um, uh, crashes. Um, which there's more mayhem, and it was going to take longer, as you know, to draw that blood. And so the average was taking two hours. Remember what I told you, you lose 90% within 80 minutes. So what's that blood level going to mean to you? Nothing. And so if you're going to then hang your head on the blood level, number one, it's not going to work. Number two, because it takes too long to draw. Number two, we don't know what the blood level is for each of these drugs. And here's the even more part. We don't know what it is when you combine them. Now, Marilyn Houston's study that I was talking about was 0.08, had the same amount of weaving with 13. When they combined the two, they found 0.05 of alcohol with five nanograms of THC. So there you go. So now you, we know that it's five instead of 13 for THC when you have 0.05 of alcohol. Get it? And so what is it then? What's the THC need to be with the when the blood alcohol is 0.06? Do you know? I don't. You know, so that that becomes a problem. What happens when you add Xanax to the mix? It's alcohol, marijuana and Xanax. What do what the blood levels need to be of each of those drugs? So you're never, never going to be able to have a blood level, especially when you start combining them. And as I told you, poly drug driving is the number one killer. So what's the blood level for these various compounds? When you combine them, we'll never have that data.
0: That's interesting. And well, and to kind of emphasize what you just said, we've kind of all are accustomed to the United States is 0.08. That's if you're just drinking alcohol with nothing else. If you add marijuana to that, you you know, one joint, then that equivalent would be 0.05 for alcohol. Add more drugs, then that level of alcohol is lower. And we don't have numbers for, for other drugs. Although I think there are drugs that we should. I I tested in a case of a methamphetamine drug driving and I showed a chart where this is a, a, a m- amount of meth that you would have or add, um, amphetamine you would have in your blood if you were using a prescription Adderall and this is how much you would have what we know people die from and his was in the middle, clearly way more than therapeutic, not quite dead and I was thinking somewhere in between there has to be a number. We should be able to, we could agree in that, uh, that you shouldn't be driving over. And but that's um, for Paul, that's, and for, that's he, a
1: single drug. That's a mono drug. That's a
0: single drug. But at least we have that. He got one drug enough to almost kill himself. Um, <laughs> and he hurt else and mm-hmm. he got away with it.
1: Yeah. yeah so, but, so sometimes
0: we pick numbers. We pick numbers like 0.08 that, you know, it's, it's an agreed upon number, we can come up with a number that at least- But it's not gonna cover some, that poly drug anyway. case
1: is my point. Because 0.05 with five nanograms of THC is enough. And that five nanograms of THC, um, that 13 became three in an hour and, t- an hour and 20 minutes. Okay? And so- because we have that, a number- Yeah, I see what you're saying, but we, I'm telling you- we
0: have, we have a number we have alcohol right. at 0.08 so right. we know that if you add more crap alcohol that number is less so right. but at least we have the 0.08 and we know okay you were at 0.08 but you are also with all this other stuff that means that you know that's that 0.08 it's not good you know you could make a principle like that but at least we have a starting point
1: right oh i i agree um, with that concept but I could tell you what I've seen from defense attorneys and it just won't work because you're gonna they're gonna walk in and go, his alcohol was 0.05. Clearly he was a drug, he wasn't at 0.08, but it's like, yeah, but he was also under marijuana. Oh, that marijuana was only at five and 13 is what Marilyn Houston showed. Get it. So you've got two low levels that we don't know. Now, in that case, we do. They they did that in in the study, that we know what those two levels are. Um but we don't know start adding you know what what is it with Xanax and and alcohol what is it with Xanax marijuana and alcohol what are the levels so that's why i say we have to get away they have zero tolerance other countries have zero tolerance okay and so right. it's called the it's called the preponderance of evidence that you know the collection of evidence you know the person's weaving down the road they caused the crash you know all that's what you have to take into account you can't be hanging your hat on a number and other countries don't hang their hat on a number. In fact, other countries now are going oral swabs. And if the oral swabs positive, that's it. You know, so so other countries have are I well see. So that's of- that's
0: what that's really the gold standard that you would be advocating for is no tolerance, you're in a collision, you're positive. I don't care how much it is. Um, you know. You're presu- it's not the American way, but but you are presumed impaired until proven otherwise.
1: Yeah, well, again, you were the you were the causer of of the crash. I mean, I know of a case in which a marijuana user ran through the traffic light, t-boned the, the the people. They tried to blame the older people that were going through the green light because they had it. They had a glass of wine with their meal. So again, we, we have to say who was the at fault driver, the guy that ran the red light that T-boned him was the one at fault, not the guys that may have had right. a glass of wine. So <laughs> we have to be, we, again, it's the, it's the overall, overall collection of evidence that needs to be taken into account. And this is just part of it, a blood level, if you believe in it. Again, I don't, I don't from the standpoint of I know how fast it leaves, you know how long it takes to draw blood. In fact, I've even heard cases where medical personnel are refusing to even draw the blood because they don't want to have to go to court. So the nurse doesn't want to draw it. The doctor doesn't want to draw it because they know later on, I got to go into court to speak about how I drew the blood. Mm -hmm. And my sister used to do that. She used to have to staple, she would staple the alcohol swab that she used and how long she waited before she stuck the needle and all that type of fun stuff. Because she used to have to go to court to talk about these alcohol impaired drivers because one of the places she worked was the emergency room.
0: Yeah, interesting. So, you know, all that is relevant to his question. What should we as providers say, you know, when should you not um, drive while taking your medications, whether it's an opioid or benzodiazepine or your Ambien for sleep um, or anything that kind of impairs. And there are FDA warnings, right? I mean, we have guidance of when we should say that.
1: We do. And, and again, it's in our package inserts that stipulate uh, from the Food and Drug Administration that to not use this drug, uh, you know, do not operate heavy machinery or, or, or drive under the influence of this drug. And so, um, again, these people are taking a risk by being out there and being you know, potentially impaired. Again, chronic users, uh, they may have some type, uh, and again, it depends on the dose, right? Again, are we talking large doses or small doses, size of the person? Um, again, you also have to consider, did they take that when they took it with another cough medicine? Um, You know, that there's an interaction that we now have an additive effect between their common drug that they were taking all the time, and now they took a cough medicine that now pushed them over and made them impaired to drive. I, I, as a pharmacist, have to put on the label, do not operate heavy machinery or drive on medications that can impair your ability to drive. I legally have to do that to warn you that this is a risk that you're taking by driving
0: right and it, it says that on your medicine and you make the point that even if you're a chronic user and you go to the pharmacy and you get your same you know number 30 hydrocodone every month um it, it they don't stop putting the label on at month three or four or five it's no, still- we never stop right and, and again because demands.
1: yeah because the concern and again we also you know there's the warning that you know if you combine this with other central nervous system depressant drugs other things that are going to affect your brain and your ability to think and move, um, again, I think we, we just take for granted to drive a car. Again, and I also point mm-hmm. this out to people. Is that a right or a privilege?
0: So if I'm a the chronic driving, pain patient and I have driving, to live on opioids, does right. that mean I can never drive a car again? I need well, to go to the grocery store.
1: <laughs> right. And, and that's the risk that those people obviously run because they, they now could injure somebody else and they could, it could be the other person's fault. So again, it's that preponderance of evidence of what, what the cause was, but they're at risk now because they were, they, they maybe you know, again, especially if you believe in blood levels and want to draw the opiate level and say, oh, this opiate level is high. um, You know, that person could be in trouble, even though they weren't the, the, the causer of the, of the event. Again, again, that preponderance of evidence comes in to affect here. But yeah, we, we do have to be very cautious in, in. There's
0: a medical, there's a medical discussion to what we're talking about and then there's a legal legal is already something bad happened. There was a collision and who's at fault and who's going to pay. And you know, that's, I'm not an expert in that. But as a doctor, I have a responsibility. What what is it safe? You know, you have chronic pain or you have anxiety, you're taking medicines. I'm thinking the medical part, the prevention part. You know, and if you are, you know, I took a hydrocodone once and uh I didn't get me two days to get my brain back. I can tell I was not normal, right? I got a right. colonoscopy and they give you fentanyl and other drugs and they right. make sure that there's no, that you're not driving home. You know, they That's make right. sure there's someone else picking That's you up. Right. That's right. You know, so the question is, you know, if if you book your arm or, or if you have chronic back pain and you're getting prescriptions, should you get behind the wheel? What should your doctor tell you?
1: Again, I would say you're you're at risk for being potentially impaired and you need to be careful. Are there other ways that you can have other people help you in moving around, especially again, if we're talking a broken arm for a short period of time, um, that's not chronic. The, the, clearly, the, the bigger issue is those people with chronic uh, pain syndromes and that need to be on, um, you know, analgesia chronically, that, that those are the ones that become more pro- problematic. And I can tell you, I worked at the VA in Fresno and i can't tell you how many chronic uh, how many truckers have uh, chronic failed back syndrome and they've had compression of their spine and they've had multiple surgeries and they are on morphine methamphetamine <laughs> you know I, i'm not methamphetamine but methadone and they're driving a car methadone, and they're driving a 16 wheeler <laughs> you know 18 wheeler going down the road
0: and that's the hard part of knowing what to say but the fda has clear warnings and then of yes. course there's the the part that we don't know what to say so yeah. um ideal legal models for uh drug driving protection
1: yeah i would i would say zero tolerance is probably the best with an oral swab and doing field sobriety tests at the at, at, the, uh, at the roadside is probably the way you want to go we should not be hanging our hats on numbers because again I'll, I'll throw out you know a drug combo um and you're not going to be able to know what the blood levels need to be so again i think we have to um you know, use our standards that we've been using for a while standard field sobriety tests showing that the people are not appropriately. Um, you know func- able to function and do do these types of things we, we actually even for marijuana we we have proven that law enforcement can detect marijuana presence. Based on their impairment with the standard field sobriety tests. per se blood levels uh, law, uh, per se blood laws are ineffective for drug impairment, especially when we start talking um, synergistic additive effects between drugs. Um, So I'd be very, very cautious. Um, The other concerning thing that I have with regards to marijuana and driving is I continue to run into this issue, um, especially in the state of California, especially down where you are. Yeah. You do know that UC San Diego is a major marijuana research center. Yeah. And uh, they do impaired driving studies. And I've asked those researchers, why aren't you using what's being sold in California? Because as you know, vape pens are have what percent THC 60, 80, 90 a lot percent THC.
0: We and, went and um, visited a, a, a cannabis dispensary as part of high Truths, and I was shocked at the level of the stuff that they're at the, that they're say, that they're selling.
1: I personally would not walk into one of those. I think they're a toxic waste dump. Um, there, there's there's heavy metals and things I can I could show you. Um, there's there's studies Dr. Gabriel out of UC Davis. Um, shows I had that a mask
0: had, on. Long, does that help?
1: <laughs> how long did you stay in there? I'd wear a hazmat suit. <laughs> I would not walk into the one of those. I'm serious. Um, they've done studies. They've, they've shown even our good state here, um, when they were supposedly testing for drugs, they caught they caught the labs that weren't testing for the drugs they were supposed to test for. Um, so this, this testing is bogus that they're doing on, 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 the, on the drugs. They're not giving the right percentage of THC. They're not admitting that there's other, um, constituents in the product. Um, it's, it's very bad. So I'd love to see them. If we have a hundred milligrams in a cookie, here's, here's the, here's the kicker. Do you realize what the medical marijuana that they can sell in a product? Do you know what the maximum is that's allowed by the state?
0: 10 milligrams per chocolate bar
1: that's a nope that's a serving size that's the FDA maximum THC dose is 10 milligrams they allow hundred milligrams in a recreational product they allow two grams of THC in a medical product two grams in fact I've even you
0: know one. what you said about the um, you know the dispensary and who and and UCSD who they themselves don't use I don't know if you saw there's a movie on Netflix called social dilemma about social media, but at the very end, they got all these heads and of, of CEOs of social media organizations, you know, uh, you know, Facebook, Google, Instagram, and they asked, would you let your children use social media? All of them. No, 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 no. I would never let my children use social media. And then you have the, (laughs) the, not the low level dealers, the high industry dealers, you know, would you let your children use marijuana? They, They don't want their kids using it, but they'll sell it to
1: To others. Absolutely. And UC San Diego will use the FDA approved maximum THC, you know, which is now they're claiming up to 12%. What I had seen before was 6% THC. Go into a marijuana shop and ask for that high potency 6% THC. That was the, that was the THC barrel in Houston was using in her driving studies.
0: That's the baby stuff. They don't even sell that.
1: You, yeah, you would never find that, let alone (laughs) a vape pen. That has 90% THC in it, you know, I mean, I think they've gotten now I think they've gotten marijuana up to 30 40% they never thought they were going to get it over 30% in the green bud now it's up to 40% I mean they celebrate it um, by by the amount of THC they can get it's it's horrendous.
0: Let me tell you another uh, marijuana project not related to drug driving that I'm working on. I wonder what you think of it and if you would help. Um, We we see a lot of drug interactions with marijuana products and in the emergency part, I've treated people who have internal bleeding, GI bleeding because they're on a blood thinner and they use marijuana that makes their, blood more thin and they have internal bleeding all sorts of places and other drug interactions we are used to going to a pharmacy and you're a pharmacist and you put stickers on your medicines take with milk don't drink with alcohol um, don't take with grapefruit juice you know there are hundreds up to 500 different drug interactions, different medications that you should not, if you're a a patient and you're getting, getting your prescription from the pharmacy that you should know not to take with marijuana. People have no idea, doctors have no idea. And so we would like to have a law in California that requires pharmacies to label products don't use with marijuana. I mean, we have so many people using; they should have informed decision of not to use a product. So we're working on um, language, unbacked language on this idea, and we're um, hoping the pharmacy board—I uh, don't have your connections with the pharmacy board—to to, um, you know to not push back on it and uh, make that a requirement, really, for consumer protection of of, of the public. What do you yeah, think?
1: You bring up a great point, and I think the onus actually um, – I'd have no problem as a pharmacist being able to, to dispense that information, um, but you do realize that state of California still deems marijuana as a CS1 drug, and I as a pharmacist cannot touch marijuana, so I, I'd lose my DEA license.
0: But you're not touching it. You're putting – and it's for CBD oh, I, products I understand. Also. I
1: understand what you're talking about. I, yeah. I understand what you're talking about, but I'm, I'm coming from the standpoint of the Board of Pharmacy says – Marijuana is a CS1 drug, but what, what are we having? And, and why then isn't the onus put on the butt tender? Why isn't the onus put on the marijuana industry to force them to tell the truth for once?
0: Well, because it's against the market. State. It's against the business model.
1: Oh, of course it is. But see, they need to start having some ownership, just like they need to own the deaths that they're causing because the fatalities that are being caused in the state of California do not even offset the cost that they're getting for the taxation in this state. Do you realize that? It's probably $1.8 million. It was $1.4 million back in 2010 when they looked at the cost per driving fatality. It was $1.4 million for each driving fatality. And I told you it's probably two to three a day. Multiply that now times $1.8 million in 2021. Do you think the, the pot tax dollars pay for any of that, let alone the hyperemesis that's coming in? Let alone. So I really say money. that the pot industry needs to start telling the truth about their product. That their product has drug drug interactions because they really need to take this on and be responsible and they're but
0: not. I don't think that that'll happen, Phil. I mean, that's like asking big tobacco that. to tell everybody about cancer and lung cancer. That took a hundred years, but not yeah. they didn't. They didn't really. They gave some money for other people. They're not the ones who really sent the message. Um, and they had to put it on
1: their packages. They were forced to with the with the lawsuits that came out once. Right, once, and once, so
0: they put a little bit. So the pot shops have some little warning labels from the Surgeon General that they you know they right. hide it in small print. That's that's right. not where we made headway with tobacco. It's not. Thank you. Well, it was the uh, tobacco insider. company that you helped us make right. less business for yourself.
1: It was um, the insider that actually, and, and this is another discussion I've had with people when we want to talk marijuana is that how do we kind of turn this against marijuana to make people wake up the hazards, the the psychoses, the car crashes, Mm -hmm. the hyperemesis, all the problems that are being caused. It doesn't matter that people are dying. It doesn't matter people are going psychotic. It doesn't matter that they're they're committing violence. It doesn't. None of that matters. The, The body count doesn't matter. And it didn't count with tobacco. What did count with tobacco? When the insider came out and said, We are targeting children with Joe Camel. We are putting menthol in in Black neighborhoods to target them. We are changing the the nicotine content. We need an insider from the marijuana industry to come out and tell the truth of all all the shenanigans that are going on right now in the marijuana industry so we can tell the public, this is what's going on. Because the public needs to know that they've been Shanghai and that this is not true. And that every time they're speaking, they're not speaking the truth. And that's why I say, let's force them to speak the truth. Let's force them to say there are drug, drug interactions with our grand product. And these are the drugs that you cannot be taking and go ahead and ask your pharmacist, but we're going to have, we have to tell you about this. I sat on the impaired driving task force. Believe me, they didn't even want to admit that their product causes car crashes.
0: Well, they I mean, it's bad for business. That's, that's kind of why I was hoping the pharmacists would, would do that. And, and, um, and, and they're used to doing that. It's just putting another oh, sure. sticker, you know, it's such an easy dude. So I hope I could. Count on you to help me out <laughs> with that
1: sure well i know there's 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 pharmacists out there that are providing this there's they're providing the drug drug interactions like you said there's many drug drug interactions and i want to point out cbd has But
0: people patients don't always know that they're using it you know they may get their coumadin most of them they have no idea they're taking their coumadin or the Effient or any of their other blood thinners they don't really yeah. know and then they go oh maybe yeah. i'll try this or hey let me use my cbd and they don't really know
1: Right, um, and so they it, need to tell- I think it'd be such provider. a public
0: service that yeah. pharmacies could provide by, with those stickers on those select medications.
1: Yeah, well, when the FDA admits that marijuana is being used out there, again, they're, they're saying this is a CS1 drug, there should be no use. I mean, they say, we, we've we approved dronabinol, we've approved CBD, we've approved Delta 9 THC already, we've approved medical marijuana. You know what,
0: we gotta push past the like legal <laughs> stuff. If this is not, that's a legal argument and i'm pushing a public health medical argument right so, and and that's a lot you can't you know people use stuff and and so you it's harder right. to you know i'm not gonna win well, a, a legal or attorney kind of debate but i i i will win the public health and medical debate
1: but you do realize again the state of oregon and there was a bill brought before in sacramento to decriminalize lsd to decriminalize pcp to decriminalize methamphetamine just like what they just did up in Oregon and so how many stickers are we yeah. going to put on 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 these bottles to warn people about all these other drugs now that are going to be coming down the pipe well
0: we'll start with one
1: we're going to start <laughs> with one I know but I think we, have
0: <laughs> we, ha- to- we do it for alcohol I'm sorry we do it for alcohol
1: we do um, we do.
0: and so, alcohol is so legal, alcohol's
1: legal right. federal alcohol is <laughs> legal federal
0: we could do this come on Phil you're going to do this with me <laughs> All right, final final words with for for Adam Berry for his wonderful question. Any advice for him? Well,
1: I would I would caution that person again. Clearly, if it's an acute episode that they're using uh, opiates for a short term, as you even acknowledge, um, it has a major impact on one's ability to drive. Um, and that you have to be cautious in giving somebody something that's going to impair their ability to drive. Um, and you have to warn them and, and encourage them. I mean, we have Uber, Lyft. We have all sorts of other ways. We have DoorDash. We have things being brought to your house that I'd be very cautious and just flippantly going, oh, yeah, and just be careful driving. You know, it's like realize that this is impaired. You, you're you not even going to remember that you drove when you after you took that Ambien. Like what happened in, in Massachusetts with a very famous person when they tried to say, Oh, I, I was taking my thyroid pill. They didn't even remember they were in the crash. And so these 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 drugs are dangerous and they need to be informed. Now the chronic users become the bigger issue as to, you know, do you feel impaired? And they've done plenty of studies, especially with marijuana, that these people do not feel that they're impaired. And when we do impaired driving studies, they're impaired and they don't feel impaired so be very cautious just warning them that if you don't feel impaired that you're safe because they're not they don't as you even acknowledged they didn't even know that they you know are involved and, and cause these things so be very 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 cautious these things impair your ability and to I think we we think that driving is such a benign easy thing and it's not it really includes your your vision your hearing your your extremities to be working appropriately and if they're not, you shouldn't be taking it because it's not just you. It's my sister driving down the road. I know.
0: Um, Adam, I want to thank you for listening to High Truths and giving us this thought provoking subject to, uh, to discuss. Adam, you're one of the people who I work with. So thank you for the care you provide our emergency department patients and being a reliable, hardworking, smart colleague, and only good health and blessings your way. And uh, Dr. Phil Drum, thank you for being our expert on high truths. You are inspiring to me. You're taking a family tragedy, your lovely sister, and making a lifelong mission to improving road safety and, and really public health. You are the reason I do what I do. And I'm honored to have you as a colleague in our educational mission to make Americans informed decision makers when it comes to pot and drugs. So thank you so much.
1: Sure. And what I usually tell people too is, I have no wife. I have no kids. I lost my sister. My parents are gone. It's just me and my brother. So I'm really doing this for you guys. And I just hope that you you listen to what I'm, the warnings that I'm heeding because it took a loved one from me to not heed this warning.
0: May her memory be a blessing. And it is. Thank you. Thank you for listening to High Truths on Drugs and Addiction, where national experts give you facts and answer your questions. This week's episode would not be possible without the generous support from our sponsors. A sincere and warm thank you to CCR, Center for Community Research in San Diego, enhancing public health and safety through informed action. We want to hear from you post a comment, or email us about one thing you learned from this program. We thank you for listening and hope you will help our rating by giving us a five-star review. And subscribe so you won't miss any of our information-packed weekly shows. Visit our website, hightruths.com, to submit a question, take a quiz, or download a free prescription for naloxone. Until next week, this is High Truths on Drugs and Addiction. Our producer is Dave Rivas from Davey Boy Productions. And I am your host, Dr. Onit Lev. We hope we brought your day a little bit more high truths.